So today in this auspicious occasion of Christmas, we have chosen the topic for our discussion as Christian mysticism and Vedanta. So as Sri Ramakrishna used to say, referring to the highest mystical realization of all faiths, Shekhane Shop Shealer Akra. All the fox howls in the similar fashion. When they reach that highest realization, the fox, by the fox, he means the mystics. See, the forest, it's a phenomenon, it's a common phenomenon that when a fox howls, you will find all other fox will be responding to it as if acknowledging it. Similarly, we will find that there may be varied differences as per the doctrines and dogmas, as per the ritualistic practices, as per the faiths and the beliefs of the various religious systems are concerned. But there are a few who take the religious very seriously. They live that life. It's not just mere belief. And it is their passion to realize the highest truth in their life that takes them, that evolves them, that transforms their personality, overhauls their personality, and takes them to that elevation of awareness, where they relate to some truth, where we will find they are echoing the same truth in all the traditions. And that proves the validity, all the authenticity of all the traditions. When we take to the practice, when we really start leading the life, when we from the surface, we try to go to the core, to the center of our being, of all our beliefs. We find it is the same center. All the difference is in the periphery. In the periphery, we may be in one end of the diameter. Someone else may be just in the opposite end, the diametrical opposite end. But when they come to the center, they all meet. Many will be saying that no, even as per the highest realization is concerned, there can be various views that we will take into our discussion today. Yes, there can be various views that also is accepted in Vedanta. But that's the question of perspective. It doesn't speak of varied truth. The same truth, when seen from various perspectives, can appear to be different. The common example which we give, if you take the picture of a building from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. It's the same building, but the pictures will be different as per the angle from which you are seeing it. So that's why the word in Sanskrit, which we use, which we loosely translate for philosophy is darshana. Actually, darshana doesn't mean philosophy. Darshana means to see. Darshana means perspective. So as per my perspective, this is the truth to which I have. Uh, came to, I have reached the same truth. Look from the various perspective. So that also is being accepted in Vedanta. But in no way they say that the truth, the ultimate truth is different. The perspective may be different. It is the same truth seen from a different perspective appear to be different. So now let us try to enter, before entering to the comparison, comparative study of Christian mysticism and Vedanta, the two mystic traditions. 
First, let us try to understand the philosophical aspect of the, all the religions. What actually this philosophical aspect of all the religions speaks of? We will find that all the, philo the philosophical aspect of all the religion stand in two pillars. One is the theology and other is the mysticism. So what these two words mean, theology and mysticism. Theology means the rational understanding or the conceptual knowledge. It is the rational understanding or the conceptual knowledge of the highest truth. And mysticism speaks of the experiential knowledge. You experience it, the experiential knowledge. That the example which we always give is testing the mango. When you test the mango, that is the experiential knowledge you know that what's the test is. Now you try to explain it. When you're trying to explain it, it becomes a conceptual knowledge. For you, it is both experiential as well as conceptual when you are trying to convert your experience into language. It is both the experience as well as the concept. So when you say the mango is sweet, it is correct. It has a certain flavor, it is correct. But the one who has not tested the mango, though your words are correct, it means nothing. Because he has not tested the mango. To say it means nothing would be wrong. It does mean something, but it has nothing to do with the real test of mango. What the person who has not tested the mango will do, after hearing that mango is sweet, that mango has a certain flavor, he will try to relate those words with his available or her available fund of experience. And as a result, what may happen? We will find varied opinions. That some may say the mango is sweet like molasses. He has most probably tested the molasses. So when he hears the word sweet, he has not tested mango. Immediately that word sweetness, he relates with his available fund of experience. And he says it is sweet like molasses and flavor. Even the flowers, that fragrance, when anything which we are eating, the fragrance from within is the flavor. So we try to relate to the flavor with some fragrance. And as we have related it, we may say it has the fragrance of a rose. What he is doing, he has not tasted the mango. He is relating the word, that flavor, with the fragrance of rose. Someone else may say, no, it is as sweet as honey. It has the fragrance of jasmine. It has the fragrance of jasmine. So why these varied opinions are emerging? Because those who are hearing, they are yet to taste the mango. So they don't have the experiential knowledge. So unless and until our the theology is substantiated by the mysticism, the theology is not wrong. It is speaking of some truth, but we cannot relate to it unless we experience it. That's why Swami Vivekananda, in a very simple word, is to say, knowledge is realization. Unless I realize something, experience something, there cannot be any knowledge. There cannot be any knowledge. All the words are just the encoding of your experience, which can be decoded only when you have a similar type of experience. Otherwise, you cannot decode it. So that is the shortcoming of the language. The language is just there to encode your experiences, 
and it helps others with a similar experience to decode. If you don't have the similar experience, language falls short. And that way, theology, unless it is substantiated with mysticism, why mysticism? It will lead to the doctrines and dogmas that has happened in the entire philosophical history. So that's the cause of the disharmony and dissension in all the religions. The mystic realizations or revelations were not substantiated by the theology. As we saw in that example of that mango, that unless you taste the mango, all those who hear about the taste of mango, they all have varied opinions. And that speaks of the disharmony, dissension in, the, in all the religions in the name of the faith, in the name of belief. Surprisingly, the word faith means belief. We say, to with faith you belong, as if religion has nothing to do with realization. It has just to do with faith. But faith is always blind. When someone, when Narendranath related to Ramakrishna, went and told to Ramakrishna that such and such faith is a blind faith. Ramakrishna laughed and asked Narendra, can you tell me which faith has eyes? Faith means blind. It has no eyes. You are believing something. I have believed in God. Have you seen God? That was the first question of Narendra when he went to see Ramakrishna. For us, religion is a belief. We fight with our belief systems. So Vedanta asserts that the religion need not be restricted only to the belief. Each and every individual has the right to realize the truth, which has been spoken of in the scriptures. Sometimes we find that some of the religions will be claiming that what the prophet has realized, we cannot realize. Swami Vivekananda is giving a very nice example that how a medicine is patented. If some newly invented medicine, some drug, it works on you, but you cannot immediately patent it. It cannot, if you won't get, you cannot just sell it in the market. First, it has to go through that experimental experience, experimental process. There should be many cases, 100 cases, where the same medicine has to be applied. And if you find that the percentages of cure is very high, so 98%, 99%, 80%, 85%, then only it can be patented as a medicine. Swami Vivekananda very strongly saying, if you say that higher spiritual truth can be realized by the prophet, by no other, uh, other people, then it is not the truth. You have not patented it. That if it cannot be realized, what it has to do with my life? I am just not made to believe the prophet. I have the inner prophet. That's why Swami Vivekananda used to say that Jesus is within you. The prophet's soul, his word is prophet's soul. The prophet's soul is within us. Whether you believe the prophet to be Jesus or Krishna or Rama or whoever it may be. That name may be different, but the prophet, the essence, the prophet's soul is in each and every one of us. And as a human being, it is our right to realize that. It is a, as a human being, we have that uniqueness. We can realize that prophet soul, which is within us. And that's the be all and end all of religion. So that's the, what's the advantage of Vedanta? So we find Vedanta is a philosophical system where the mystical experience 
is complemented, substantiated by the theology, by rational understanding. It goes hand in hand. Shankaracharya in his commentary is mentioning the man of the keen intellect which the world is yet to see, such a young person of keen intellect by which he is establishing the Advaita Vedanta. After establishing his saying, he is quite humble enough to say there may be there may be someone who is quite intellectual to negate all the all the uh, this concepts of Advaita Vedanta, which has been established through my commentaries. There may be someone, but no one can contradict the realization. So we will find in the legal system it happens with your intellect, you can prove something. It, sometimes we will find that though uh, the witness is important, but the way the thing, the lawyer is going to present, by that sometimes the truth can be presented in a totally different way. So that's the domain of intellect. With intellect we can prove and it is like a double-edged sword. We can prove anything, we can again negate it. But realization can never be negated. If I have seen the ocean, no one can make me doubt about the existence of ocean. As long as I have read it in the geography book, someone may come. I have not seen, I am yet to see it. Someone may come and say, it's all bogus, there is nothing called ocean. And he may be a strong exponent. He may have the power to convince others. And he may be convinced. But if once I have seen the ocean, can anyone ever make me doubt about its existence, however strong may be his arguments. It can never. So realization is the only thing which can take you beyond all doubts. That that in the prayer song which we sing every day, song, that realization helps you to go beyond all sangshaya, all the doubts. It gives you the conviction, dhriranishchaya. And that's the thing which Vedanta accepts, that all the mystical experience need not be the same. It accepts. Why? Because of two factors. One is as per your evolution is concerned. When you are in your spiritual journey, how you are evolved. As Swami Vivekananda used to give an example, if you take the photo of the sun from the earth and suppose with a means of satellite, you start proceeding towards the sun. You go nearer and nearer to the sun. As you will find that now with the help of all the satellites, the photos of the sun has been taken much more from the near or even from the earth with the help of very powerful telescope. When you have taken the pictures of the sun, the sun appears to be totally different. From here, it just appears like a bulb from the earth. But when you see from near, you find so much of activity is going on. So much of activity is going on there. It's a constant, like a huge fire furnace. So much with so much of activity is constantly going on. So your, your, the vision of the same sun changes as you go nearer and nearer to the thing which you are in search of. Similarly, the ultimate truth, though it may be the same, same as per evolution, it may be something different. As very nicely we will find in one of the couplets, 
which is attributed to hanumana when rama sri rama asked hanumana that how that what is your opinion about me how you look at me hanumana's reply is a wonderful reply which speaks of that the evolution in our spiritual life and with the evolution how our the way we are looking at the truth the perspective changes what is that reply very nice reply deha buddhya dasoham that as long as i think myself as the body then you are the lord i am your servant deha buddhya dasoham jiva buddhya tavangshaka when i am jiva what is the jiva that which transmigrates it's the manomaya vigyanamaya kosha not this physical body not this deha it is the mind it is essentially the mind when i am identified with my mind i find you are the whole i am the part it is not total separate like when i am saying dasa i am servant you are the master i am the servant there is a question of total difference but when i say i am just your part it is like as jesus the same thing uh, swami vivekananda in his lecture on jesus have indicated that in the bible we will find that when he is speaking to the common men he is saying that thy the, the thou the lord who is in heaven as if something there is a spatial difference there is difference in space there is difference in the individuality it is a different person the god is a different person i am totally separated from him the same jesus when he is having conversation with his intimate disciple he is saying that i am the grape you are the vine the lord is the entire vine you know that in the grape year that all the grapes will be in a single vine so the, so he is as if the vine and i am that individual grape so you are the whole i am the part so jiva buddhya tavangshaka atma buddhya when i know i am the atman i am not this five koshas i am not the pancha this pancha kosha behind that i am the self atma buddhya tavevaham tava iva aham i am same with you iti me nishchita matihi this is my strong conviction this is my nishchita mati this is my unwavering conviction so what it speaks of evolution as you evolve just as a ordinary person when i think myself as an individual being with my total identification with the body then god is the lord i am the servant it speaks of a layers of spiritual understanding we need not go into that because that itself will again take into a total discussion for few classes but what we want to say that as per evolution your concept of the highest divinity changes that's a wonderful reply of hanuman the same thing in the bible we find the three things when he is speaking to the common mass he says thou lord is in heaven when he is speaking to his inner disciples he is saying him the you are the god is the vine we are the grapes and again i and my father are one that is also been spoken by jesus and when someone challenged jesus that how can you say so it's not something which jesus alone is saying as 
we say he is the son of God, so he can say no. He is saying that you just go to the Old Testament. In the Bible itself, it is there. Ye are gods. He quotes the Bible that it, I'm not speaking something from my own. He's uh, just my own, um, uh, what you say, manufactured by me. I'm speaking from my experience, but that is substantiated by the scriptures. Ye are gods is in there in the Old Testament. He's asserting. So that's the thing that this speaks of the evolution. The Vedanta accepts that. And another is the perspective with which we started our discussion today. From, again, from the body perspective, from when you think yourself as an individual soul, from that perspective, you're looking at the truth. The same truth appears something. When you're looking from this perspective of your mind, you become a part of the cosmic mind. If cosmic mind is a God, you are just a part of it. Just the example we give nowadays that in internet, everything is available. But if you are an engineering student, you download the things which is related to your subject and that creates your world. So if the entire internet is like that cosmic mind, from there you have downloaded your own mind, the individual mind, which is not something discrete, segregated. It's a part of the whole. So the cosmic mind is something of which my mind forms a part. That is the idea of Vishishta Advaita. And the Advaita speaks of when I am one with the soul. I am just one with the absolute reality. So from which level of understanding, the highest, highest level of understanding, what it speaks of? We can give an example that when a prism, when the white light passes through the prism, it breaks into the spectrum of seven colors. You remove the prism, the seven colors is no more there. It merge with the white light. So mind is like the prism. The Advaita speaks that when you go even beyond the mind, when you go beyond the body, beyond the mind, the prism has fallen off. It is a consciousness which was appearing as this world of name and form. It merges with the absolute. It is one with that. So there is no differentiation. So from which perspective you are looking at the truth, that speaks of what you are realizing. That doesn't speak that the truth is different. It speaks of how evolved you are and what perspective you're looking at. That's why, why all the faiths, that all the faiths are blind. And that's why they relate only to a particular aspect of the reality, the same reality. But they're, as they're relating to the particular aspect, that's why the difference of opinion comes. As Sri Ramakrishna gives a wonderful example that five blind, blind men were trying to ascertain the how the elephant looks like, what's the shape of an elephant. So one by one, they go and touch the elephant. One says it is like a very stout rope. He has touched the trunk of the elephant. So it looks like a stout rope. Someone told it is like a pillar. He went and touched the feet, the, the legs of the elephant. So it's like a pillar. Someone told it's like a cauldron. Someone has touched the belly. It's like a cauldron. Someone has touched the ear. So it's like a willow. It's a... So you are just relating to a particular aspect of the same truth. And that's why all those varied opinions. So as per your evolution, as per your perspective, the truth may appear different, but it is the same truth which you are relating to. So in this, what is the scope of Vedanta? So in, you will find that the mysticism speaks of direct communion with the divine. And naturally, it appeals to the humankind. 
However, a organized religion may say that have believe in God, that is be all and end all of religion. But when you find someone like Ramakrishna constantly is in communion with the divine, something within us inspires. That's the thing I want. Because I find that such a man, the child of God, is always in happiness. The world as if can in no way tarnish him. He's beyond all the opposite polarities of life. He no more swings like a pendulum from one pole to the other, like the ordinary human being. He transcends all the suffering. And that's the thing which appeals to the entire humanity when they read those life, when they see those life. So mysticism, though we will find that many organized religion have been very, have very strongly objected to that mysticism. The mysticisms were branded as heretics. But we find the common mass, it appealed to them. Though the church was not accepting, but we'll find, we will come to the discussion. In the entire medieval uh, Christian history, we will find that though the mystics were branded as heretics by the church, they appealed to the sentiment of the common mass. And many were inspired by that. And that enabled to create a Guru Shishya Parampara, as we speak in Vedanta. Like the teacher and the disciple, each and everyone going to the realization following the predecessor. So we will find that. So this mysticism speaks of the communion with the divine and naturally it appeals the humankind. But as if you are saying that in the, in the church, in the organized religion, we find that the theology is not substantiated by the mysticism. Actually, it is disapproved. They censor it. So that's why people turn away from the faith. They don't, they don't find that the, any way to transcend the so-called the opposite polarities of life. So that's why they turn away from faith. They were no more satisfied with the mere belief. So Vedanta has that potency, poten this potency, that potentiality to substantiate the mystical traditions of all faiths. And thereby, it enables people to regain faith in their own age-old traditions. That's the thing which Swami Vivekananda wanted to assert, that what's the scope of Vedanta? It doesn't speak of uniformity. There's no question of conversion. That to be a spiritually realized soul, you have to be converted into the Vedantic way of belief. No. It affirms that all faiths to be true, thereby motivating all to grow spiritually by remaining deeply rooted in the age-old traditions. You can remain deeply rooted in your own age-old tradition. Actually, that becomes a plus point. For any tree which has already grown, you cannot simply uproot and just plant it in some other place. It is very, it is impossible. So we have been, each and everyone have been nurtured in our own traditions, our emotions, our uh, way of thinking, our way of life. Everything is as if been cooked with the tradition. It's something which has become a part and parcel of our soul. And suddenly to uproot it and just place it in some other tradition, it can never help us spiritually. As Swami, as Sri Ramakrishna, very funny, very, very, very nice way, is to jokingly is to give an example that what he used to say that a man was a devotee of 
the Jagadamba of the Divine Mother. And he was forcibly converted to Islam. Someone came and converted him and asked him to chant the name of Allah. So this poor man was chanting the name of Allah, but suddenly now and then, as if like a slip of tongue, he was saying, Ma, 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 Jagadamba. So the, the clerics were terribly angry. Like just now we told, just say Allah, why are you taking the name of this Jagadamba? So from where it comes? And this man said, please pardon me, sir. I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best to chant the name of Allah. But you know what has happened? Your Allah is just up to the throat. Jagadamba has saturated my, from below the throat, my entire system is saturated with Jagadamba. That's what was my life. So now what is happening, that it is so superficial, that Allah's name is so superficial for me, that the Jagadamba is now and then forcing out just something thele thele in Bengali, that word is very interesting, thele thele, that Amar Ma, Amar Allah ke thele thele dicche. It is just pushing out what it speaks of. That we are all ingrained in a tradition. And suddenly to just come out of it and get our uh, just uh, try to put our root in some other tradition, it speaks of the total, that uh, uprooting of the system. That's not required. In Vedanta, they say, that what is required is not conversion, but conviction. That, that though each and every faith is blind, that Sri Ramakrishna told, but they each of them, they themselves are blind, but they can be the eye opener. If you follow them, they can take you to the realization. As long as you are not reaching the realization, they are mere faith, but they have the potential to take you to the realization. And when you go to the realization, your faith, will take you to the conviction. So there is no need for conversion. What is required is through spiritual practices, go to that conviction, which Vedanta asserts is possible through all the traditions. So with this object of objective of Vedanta, this keeping this objective in view, now we will try in short to discuss the Christian mysticism from the Vedantic perspective. That how we, that we, when we appreciate Christian mysticism, not because that Vedanta is something which uh, cannot take us to the fulfillment. Christianity is something like an awe factor. No, not from that way. We can easily relate to the real truths of Christianity from that Vedantic perspective that we were speaking of. That as we evolve, we will all find that from various perspectives, we are looking at the same truth. And we can appreciate it. And that's why we will find that they, there's the, the, all the mystics in the Christian tradition who were branded as heretics. But with the passage of time, when the people, when the world as if evolved, our thought process evolved, they again, the world has started accepting them. And there we find how Vedanta, from the very beginning, in India, there was no question of branding anyone as heretics because this idea was there that from the very beginning that as many faiths, so many paths, as Sri Ramakrishna told, Jatamot, Tatupat, that, that all this, this way through these various approaches, we can reach that same goal. So now today, that we will try to understand the history of the Christian mysticism. Uh, and how the, some of the giants of this Christian mystic tradition 
when we try to reflect to their life, how we will find that how they're reflecting the same perennial truths, which has been spoken of even in the Vedantic tradition. So mysticism had always actually flourished from the very beginning in the church, but we will find in the 14th century, in the 14th century, we will find it's blossoming. Mysticism was blossoming. It had its origin very interesting that the millennia theory actually helped that the idea that uh, after the, at the end of the millennium, the Lord will again come, the Christ will come to redeem those who are really faithful, they will be redeemed, rest all will be just going to that eternal hell. So that was the idea. It was a very, we will say from the Vedantic perspective, just a belief, it's a dogmatic belief, but that belief, as we told, belief is blind, but it can be an eye-opener. That belief that the Christ is going to redeem us the millennium, when the 1000, after the 1080, now you will find the same thing is happening now. After the year 2000, so many, this, this the theories of apocalypse is coming one by one, one by one. You know it for certain, its origin is in that belief, the millennium theory, idea of millennium. They, they all, the belief is that millennium means thousand years. Means after thousand years, the world will be destroyed. Christ will come and he will redeem the world. So how much truth is behind that belief, we don't know. But that belief, though is a, uh, itself may be blind, but it's an eye-opener. How the Christian mysticism evolved from that. Many started joining the, this Christian monastic fold. And trying to, when they were trying to lead an intense spiritual life, because the world is coming to an end, anytime it's coming to an end. So that led to that intense spiritual life where in any spiritual tradition, intense spiritual life means trying to renounce the so-called sensate world, diving deep within, whatever may be the belief system. That's the common process which we are all going through. And that leads to that mystical realizations. So you will see the faith was blind, but it is taking to some mystical realization. So what's the mystical realizations are? So we will today speak of three remarkable persons the mystical giants in the Christian tradition. So we will enter into this world of this Christian mysticism by looking into the life of the life and teachings of these three remarkable persons whose contribution in this field of Christian mysticism is enormous. So who are they? The first is the Meister Eckhart. Many of you have heard the name of Germany. The other two, the names are quite familiar in the Christian tradition, but others may not be such more familiar with it. Is one is the second is the Saint Bridget of Sweden, and third is the Julian of Norwich, Britain. So these three we will take in short uh, the lives and teachings of these three to relate with our Vedantic teaching that how their realization is something which is attuned with the same Vedantic teaching, which in that way, which gives the authenticity to all the religious tradition, that when you reach that mystic tradition, the heights of the mystic tradition, you're all speaking almost the same language. It feels, sometimes you feel as if they have read their other scriptures, if the words are so similar. But you will find that there was most probably no, they were not in touch with any of this tradition. But when you go to that realization, 
your words are bound to be in tune with the others. So now this Mr. Eckhart, in short, his life, he was born in uh, 1260. He entered the this Dominican order uh, of church and he studied in Cologne and Paris. And he was deeply influenced by another mystic, Thomas Aquinas. He is a great exponent of the mystical tradition in Christianity. Uh, he, he was active reformer of the Dominican church. So in 1314, he started teaching in the house of contemplative nuns. It is in the Rhine province of Western Germany. And then he became the teacher in Cologne. And there it, he was accused of heresy that we were speaking that all this, most of these mystics were branded by the church as heretics. That they're speaking something which is not of our belief system, of our fold. So he was accused of heresy. And Mr. Eckhart fiercely denied the accusation, but he was lucky. He didn't have to go through the prosecution because two years after his death, in 1329, the Pope condemned certain propositions extracted from his writings. It was condemned. Though much later, again, Mr. Eckhart has been accepted as a authentic, uh, what you say, that expon an exponent of the mystical traditions. But in those days, he was branded, after his death, he was branded as a heretic. So what is our teachings that really perplex the church? Because he was speaking of God beyond God. So he was speaking of God beyond God. You will just see that the word itself immediately, that when God is the ultimate, how can you speak of God beyond God? In his own words, abandoning all things without abandoning God is still not abandoning anything. Just see the words. Abandoning all things without abandoning God is still not abandoning anything. So this is the thing in spiritual tradition to explain it from the Vedantic perspective. There is an example which we give that ultimately what is the cause of bondage? The cause of bondage is holding on to something which I am not. I am not this body-mind complex. I am holding on to it. And sometimes when I find that this is the cause of suffering, then I try to hold on to some idea. That as to give an example, when Swami, Vedanta, Swami Vivekananda in West was preaching Vedanta, that I am not the body, not the mind, not the senses, I am the Atman. Someone from the audience stood up and told Swamiji, it's a very nice idea. It's a nice idea to hypnotize ourselves to go away from the suffering. We hypnotize ourselves by saying I am the Atman and that helps us to go away from the suffering. So it's a very nice idea to hypnotize ourselves. And then immediately Swami Vivekananda had a very wonderful smile in his face. He told, Madam, Madam, it's not hypnotization of what I'm speaking of. It is de-hypnotizing. You're already hypnotized. You're already hypnotized that you are the body, you are the mind, you are the senses. I am trying to de-hypnotize you. But for most of us, the so-called those who turn to spirituality is what the God, idea of God is a belief. And we are quite happy with that belief. And we use that just to get rid of our worldly adversities. I try to forget them. Religion becomes like running away 
as Bhagavad Gita starts with that idea, we find Arjun is trying to run away. There is God beyond God. To give an example, that real realization comes when you can simply release even all those beliefs and concepts. You go then immediately you go beyond that. To give an example, that to fall from a tree, there is no need for any effort. Do you have to any? Do you have to really have any effort for falling from a tree? You are holding to some branch. You leave the branch. Gravitation pulls you down. You don't have to really exert to fall from a tree. What keeps you on the tree? You are holding onto a branch. Now, if it so happens that the branch has some insects, and they start biting you, then but you don't want to really fall from the tree. You want to hold onto the tree. So what do you do? You release the hold from that branch and try to get hold of some another branch, which most probably is free from all those insects. Our concept of God is a branch which is free from insects. Nothing else. It is still a branch onto which we are holding. To fall, there's no need for effort. If you leave your hand, the gravitation will pull you down. Similarly, in all the spiritual tradition, the ultimate realization comes from total sharanagati. Total living of. That's why in Bhagavad Gita, in the last chapter, that Krishna is speaking of sarvadharman parityajya mamekam sharanangraja. First he speaks of all the yogas, karma yoga, jnana yoga, raja yoga, bhakti yoga, do this, do that. And then at last he's saying, leave everything take my, that's resigned to me. That why he's saying that last? We could have told at the very beginning. But you know, when, you, when, we, when someone says resign and I also just uh, verbally say resign to you, it is just verbal. You know that when the challenges of life come, you will again hold on to something. But you can never really let go unless you have really exhausted yourself trying. As Ramakrishna used to give that wonderful example that a bird was sitting on the mast of a ship and the ship was in the deep waters of the ocean and now it wanted to go to the shore. It flew to the east, couldn't find any land, came back, again sat on the mast, went to the west, couldn't find any land, came back, went to the north, went to the south. At last it was exhausted. Now it resigned sitting on the mast. Let the ship take me. So that's the idea that all these practices at last should really bring you to that feeling. Otherwise, it's just mere words. And when that sharanagati comes, just the way when you leave the hold of the branch, you automatically fall. Gravitation is always there. Similarly, the plan of the universe is such, God has made the universe in such a way, the grace is always there. The grace to realize that ultimate reality, to be one with the divine, it's in the plan of the universe. For that, we just have to leave the hold. We are constantly projecting ourselves to the world, trying to hold it. If not, we are trying to hold to our own body, to our own thoughts, to our own mind, our own concepts. Even the thought of God is a concept to which we are holding. Unless we release that, there cannot be that grace. That's the way gravitation automatically takes us down. Similarly, the grace ascends, takes us up. And when it takes us up, then and then only you come to that real realization where everything you hold on to, your body, your mind, your concepts has fallen off. You are one with that absolute reality. 
not before that. You have to go beyond the mind. Swami Vivekananda, went for the first time, went to the Niagara Falls. He saw that the rainbow is always there. Now, because of pollution, you don't see. Even in the uh, olden days, in the time of Swamiji, on full moon night, the rainbow was visible. Even the rainbow was visible on full moon night. So it was always there. And why the rainbow is there? Because the falls is there. If the falls is not there, the rainbow won't be there. So seeing that Swami Vivekananda immediately uh, formulated one wonderful allegory. He told, sun is the ultimate reality, Brahman. The rainbow is the God. And this waterfall is the world of which the mind is also a part, which is always flowing. This world is samsara. Samsarati is samsara. Everything is flowing. The world is flowing. Similarly, the mind is constantly in flow. Thought after thought, thought after thought. So when something permanent like sun is falls on, its light falls on something which is flowing, it creates an impression of something which is permanent, like the rainbow. So in Vedanta they say, Swami, in this, what is the Swami Vivekananda's definition of God? Many definitions he has given. One of the definitions is, God is the highest reading of the Absolute. The Brahman, which is beyond the mind, when it reflects through the mind, the highest reading we can have of it is God. Means something like sun, which is falling on something which is constantly changing, give the impression of the rainbow. Rainbow is like God. So in Advaita Vedanta, they say, when, now just take this example, when the Niagara Falls is not there, if it, is, it gets dried up, will the rainbow be there? It won't be there. But will the sun be there? Sun is still there. So the, this appearance of something permanent is there as long as something really permanent is getting reflected in something which is a flow. The real God, which is beyond God, is the Brahman. When it finds reflected through the mind and we try to find the highest reading of it, which is not this world, it's something beyond this world, is our idea of God. And here occurred the mystic who somehow has went beyond that concept. He's, that's how wonderfully, just almost like in tune with the Vedanta is saying, abandoning all things without abandoning God is still not abandoning anything. So how would they find it's just reflecting the idea of that Vedanta where this God beyond God, this the God which is beyond God is the Brahman, which finds, which we, we experience as God through our mind, through our senses. Beyond that, it is Avang Manasagocharam. It is beyond the mind, beyond the senses. And that's the thing which is Avang Manasagocharam has been spoken of by Mr. Eckhart as from our Vedantic understanding as the God beyond God. Just see that how the mystic traditions somehow are in tune with each other. He's speaking of birth of God in the soul. For again, he was again, for that he was censored, highly censored. That God is. How can you say that birth, the birth of God in the soul, that God is as if born in your soul. This is the idea which now is more, very common in the uh, Christian mystic tradition. But these are the words in those days were considered as heresies. That the birth of God in the soul in his writing again and again and finding that what is again, he's saying the same thing. That at present God is just a concept. 
when through spiritual realization you go to that ultimate nirvikalpa samadhi then the god which is already there is being realized and then it was as if a screen was there it was not realized the screen has fallen off and the god is now born in your soul it was there but it as the covering is removed it is born in your soul so he is speaking of god that birth of god in the soul from the sense of spiritual realization in advaita vedanta they speak of this what is this nirvik nirvikalpa samadhi they say is the when there is a triputi bheda the triads collapse what is that the idea of triad dhyana dhyata dhyaya when i am meditating i have the idea that i am meditating there is an object of meditation even when you are saying i am brahman brahman is something i am something i the process of meditation is com- is just combining these two is joining these two when through intense meditation in what happens as we become more and more constant uh, uh, focused the first the external distraction start falling off and then you will find even in your life when you are intently doing something you forget to take food you target to take rest so even your bodily feelings falls off because that also needs a part of your mind to be engaged they also start falling off you tremendously engaged the thought of this divine contemplation whatever may be your concept of divine when it becomes extremely focused at last the idea of ego that ego this this we can never get rid of the first very first bondage has happened when the conscious principle got reflected in the psychophysical this flow to give the idea of aham that i am this body mind complex that's the very basic cause of ignorance that is the last remnant to go off when the mind is extremely focused in whatever it may be at last that also falls off the ego has now you become the dhyan dhyata dhyaya that i am meditating this idea falls off you become one with the object of meditation that's why sri ramakrishna used to say faith is everything in religion intense faith why that will take you to the realization what you believe is not important how intensely you believe is important and that's why sri ramakrishna told that someone was given a useless mantra thinking that he is a stupid garol mantra dikha diye chilo and he got went to the realization because he took the words very seriously he was a man of tremendous a simple person had a tremendous faith he took the word seriously dive within with that meaningless word he went to the realization what has happened what you believe is not important how intensely you believe is important the process that's the programming that when you intensely are focused on certain things all things falls off at last the ego also falls off making you one with the object of meditation now when the ego has fallen off what has happened in the words of ramakrishna as if you have created a hole in the wall of ego there's a wall and you have created a hole and now you peep through that hole you see infinite expanse so somehow to create a hole in the wall of the ego is the aim be all and end all of all spiritual practice so once you have created that hole you see the same infinite expanse but as you see through that hole the structure of the hole is something through which you are relating to that infinity you say that the circle if you have made the hole in the form of a circle it is a circle which speaks of infinity if someone has made the hole in the form of square they will say the square it is only through square you can go to the infinity that only through jesus you can go to the infinity only through krishna you can go to the infinity 
Why it is happening? Because you, through your belief system, in the wall of your ego, you are chiseling. You are chiseling the form of Krishna. You are chiseling the form of Christ. As long as the chiseling was going on, it was all faith. But when the chiseling is complete, of the shape, the framework through which you are peeping into the same infinity, that gives you the impression that this is the only thing through which I can peep into the infinity. And that's why Sri Ramakrishna practiced all the religions, not only practiced, not it was not restricted only to the belief, it went to the realization. That's why after coming from the realization, he's saying all these beliefs are nothing but holes, so many holes created in the wall of ego. And that's the thing which speaks of the birth of God in the soul. God is there, but this wall of ego never allows us to realize that. So it has to be born by creating that hole. All our practices should lead to that. Otherwise, it can just remains bound to the doctrines and dogmas. But these are the words which, as per the doctrine and dogma, is something which is contradicting the this belief system that God is eternal. How can you say God be born? And so again, for that he was censored. And this birth of God in the soul, how it happens? By realizing the nothingness of the soul. So again, it is a, a heresy. Why? That we came from nothingness, but the soul is not nothing. It is going to be eternal. It came from, as per the doctrine, as per the dogma, in the Christian belief, that it that we uh, that we had no existence. It's God has created us. But once he has created us, we are going to be eternal. So what he is saying that, that uh, in his words, again and again, he is mentioning that actually there is nothing called soul, nothingness of the soul. What is, is actual, actual words for which he was censored? All creatures are pure nothing. I don't say they are insignificant. So as I see, he is stressing that in the belief system, they say, you are insignificant. God is something. He's the Lord of the universe. You are insignificant. He's saying, I don't say they are insignificant. They are absolutely nothing. Whatsoever has no essence does not exist. No creature has essence because the essence of all is in the presence of God. God is, one is there in the words of Ramakrishna, after one, you go on putting zero, the value increases. Remove the one, everything is zero. In Vedanta, it is called Adhyasavada. That God is projected as the universe. No God, no universe. So in essence, we are nothing. It is God who is appearing as me and you and the after creation. And that's the thing which was contradicting the belief. And just see how the words take them beyond the realization, beyond the so-called words in the scriptures. It takes them to that realization that all creatures are pure nothing. I don't say they are insignificant. They are absolutely nothing. Whatsoever has no essence does not exist. No creature has essence because the essence of all is in the presence of God. If God withdraw from the creature for just one moment, he would disappear to nothing. Just for one moment. That's why in Vedantic tradition, you will find God is called Animesha. In the one who never winks. Nimesha means to wink. And so if he winks, so when we wink, as if for some time our vision is restricted. We don't have no vision. If God just once winks, if creation is gone, 
So he's animation. So that's what he's been mentioned here. As long that if God withdraws from the creature for just one moment, he would disappear to nothing. It's not that he's just insignificant. He would disappear. So it speaks of that adhyasabhada. The universe is a projection of the Lord. It's not that something has been converted. When we say that the world is nothing but the divine, it doesn't mean that the milk has become yogurt. There is no transformation, no parinama. It is adhyasa. It is like the mirage which you see in the desert. As long as the desert is, the mirage is. Whereas the way, the way you see a snake in a rope, as long as the rope is, though it is a false vision, the snake exists as long as the rope is there. You remove the rope, the snake is, snake is not there. Actually, it is not a snake at all. It was rope, it is rope, it will be rope. Because of Ajnana, for some time, it appears as the snake. Because of the Ajnans, at certain point of time, I started seeing it as snake. When someone with a light focused on it, and I saw the rope, the snake vanished. So the entire creation is just as long as the ignorance is. The moment the ignorance is gone, it is the Lord and Lord alone. It is the consciousness and consciousness alone. So if the consciousness is not, the creation is not, because it is just a projection, adhyasa of it, superimposition. So just see how these words you can easily relate. The one just being born in a tradition, taking his the practices based on the tradition can go to the realization where you will find all the fox is howling in the same manner. Now, despite all controversies, this Eckhart's influence on the development of Christian mystic tradition was immense. Mystics, both of male and female, they increasingly appeared across the entire Europe, you will find in the 14th century. The next one is the Saint Bridget of Sweden which of whom we are going to discuss. So this Bridget, as she was a, as a child had visions and dreams, that she was born with that type of faculty. In dream, she interacted with Christ. And this experience remained throughout her life. Now she founded a religious order for the woman. Christ appeared to her and asked her to go to Rome. And she left Sweden at the end of 1349. And, uh, she stayed there. That she the entire life she stayed there. So though she was originally from uh, this Sweden, then she left for uh, this his uh, uh, clerical means his uh, as a church. He went to Rome and he never returned there. He went for the reformation of the church. For the rest of her life, she had a lot of visions, and and it all these visions were related to the reform of the church. And she brought the messages to the, she was a highly influential. See, her message, she took it to the kings, to the popes, all the high office, offices in the church. And after she died in 1373, she was canonized very quickly in 1391. She was highly influential that though she was from that mystic tradition, we will find that already the mystic tradition had started gaining ground. And she became a quite influential figure in the Christian mystic tradition. Now, what are the main tenets of her revelations? Again, we will find very interesting. She never wrote in first person. This is the thing which we find in the life of Sri Ramakrishna. In the Vedantic tradition, that when you go to the realization, that the last word which we found of Mr. Eckhart, that after all, you are not insignificant, you are nothing. It is God alone who is being projected as you and me. 
So the word I comes out from delusion. So she never used the word being a woman of that realization. She never used the word I. You will find this reflection even in the life of Ramakrishna. In the life of Ramakrishna, even in the gospel you will find whenever he has to say something about himself, he will always say the one who resides here. He will never say, it's very interesting. If you, uh, most of the children, when they start that developing the language, you will find when the mother asks, hey, who has done that thing? The child will say its own name and say that, uh, say his name is say, uh, Bob or something. Bob has done it. He will never say I have done it. This vocabulary comes much later. Somehow we will find that we were born in that, that state of that innate purity where our consciousness were unlocal. As a child you will find it's very unlocal consciousness. It's, we doesn't have those barriers. Gradually we develop it. So and that's the state where we will find all the spiritual mystic traditions are going back consciously. Consciously are going back to that state, the pure state. So they can never say, we will find she never wrote in the first person. And she referred herself always, this, this idea that, that the nuns always referred to them as the bride of Christ. This originated from this Bridget uh, this, uh, of Sweden. She always referred her as the bride of Christ. Uh, we will find this reflection even in the latest, you know, that in the Mother Teresa of Calcutta. So when someone seeing the, the tremendous amount of work charities she had done and he just told that it is not possible for an ordinary person. As you have renounced everything, you are a nun, you have no such family obligations. So that's why most probably it was possible for you. And immediately uh, Mother Teresa replied, no, I'm married. And then she pointed at the cross around the neck and what is told is interesting. And he too can be extremely demanding. <laughs> just, just the way we say ordinary. So that's what the idea that you are in the, when you are in communion with the divine, it's good. But when the divine asks you as in the life of Ramakrishna, as in the life of Swami Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda used to say that someone is sitting on my neck and making me do the things I have done. Ramakrishna, when Naren told that I want to remain, remain in that intense meditation, nirvikalpa samadhi, just to wake up now and then, to eat a little food to sustain my body and again go into meditation. Ramakrishna told that, I thought you are a huge banyan tree. Under you so many will take refuge. How can you be so mean-minded? And then again Narin asserted that, no, I want to be in that state. And then Ramakrishna, without giving any expression, told, Tor ghar korve. I will sit in your neck and make you do. And that's what Naren felt that this, he used to say, that in, in this life has been sold to this illiterate Brahmin. He has just, I have been purchased by him. He has, been, he has made me my slave. He has made me do the things. And that's the idea which we find. That your total idea that Swami used to say, I am a voice without form. There's someone sitting within me speaking. It is not me. The idea of I, me falls off. Totally. And that's the idea we find in the life of these mystics. It is though they're doing immense work, this, this Bijet uh, this, uh, uh, had a tremendous impact on the, this Christian reformation. But she always felt it is not she. 
It is the Lord who is sitting within the core of his being, just doing all these things. She is just the bride and he can be extremely demanding. That's the idea. In one of the example that Bridget is giving is that Christ is speaking to her. That she has she had visions, what she is saying, you are extremely ungrateful. If in return for such a great charity, you do not love me. If my head was pierced and inclined in the cross for you, your head should be inclined towards humility. Since my eyes were bloody and full of tears, your eyes should be kept away from pleasurable sights. Since my ears are filled with blood and harsh mocking words against me, your ears should turn aside from frivolous and unfitting talk. Just see how intense life they led. These words are so inspiring for it crosses the barriers of all tradition. You just read the life of the mystics. How touching these words are. The same idea is reflected in our Upanishads, where they say Paranchi Khani Vyatrinatswayambhu, Tasmat Parak Pashyatina Antaratman, Kashchidhira Pratyagatman Aikshat, Avritta Chakshu, Amritatomichan. That Lord has inflicted the senses in such a way that it looks outwards. It is always trying to get involved with this paraphernalia called the world. Kaschidhira, if you who can close their avritta chakshu, try to dive within. Instead of moving out, they try to move within. And for them and them alone, the so-called the world of eternity opens up. Amritattva, the world of Amritattva. Those who really desire that, they have to close their eyes. That's the idea that all the Christ suffering is actually meant for making us dive within. That take the suffering in that sense that he came and suffered to change our orientation so that this world, as in the words of Ramakrishna, is like a dog's curly tail. It can never give you any perfection, however you may try. At last, you have to dive within. You cannot straighten it. In your attempt to straighten it, at last, you yourself have to get straightened. And that's the idea which we find in the words of these mystics. In a very short we will take, we have already uh, just taken a lot of time, the Julian of Norwich from UK. She's Bridget's contemporary. And she was also an extraordinary figure. So she is celebrated as a mystic whose revelations of the divine love is often considered to be one of the greatest work in the medieval religious tradition. Uh, and she spent the latter half of her life uh, of this church in the North Norwich in UK. And she was in 1373, she was healed from some serious illness. And that happened because of some visions. So visions in which she experienced encounters with the son of God. And it was almost incurable. And there was some like a, a sudden uh, transformation. There was a sudden, then he revealed, that she revealed this, all the profoundness of his spiritual bond with the Christ. In one of her writings with which we won't continue much, there's a lot, this, uh, these words are really very, very profound, very uh, touching, but we'll take just a snippet of it. That one of the writings of Julian of Norwich, uh, we will find that how closely it relates to 
the Ramakrishna's realization. I looked with all my might for the moment of his dying, of Jesus dying, and thought I would have seen his body completely died. But I did not see him thus. And just as I was thinking that his life was about to finish and that I must be shown his end, suddenly when I gazed at the cross, his expression changed. It changed to cheerful joy. The change in his blessed countenance changed mine too. Seeing his changed countenance in him, that, that was the cause of my healing. That changed mine too. And I was as glad and as happy he could be. So again, the words sometimes, you know, that uh, maybe uh, not enabling us to go to that exact the realizations that they are going through. What's the realization? That's again, that when you become detached from the body-mind complex, the body-mind complex has to go through the suffering in some way or other. For Christ, it was the crucifixion. For us, it may be our disease. Our disease is a form of crucifixion. None can avoid it. Old age, as Buddha used to say, jara vyadhi mrityu. You all have to go through. We are all have to be crucified. As Jesus used to say that I have borne the cross for the entire world. You bear your own cross. We all have to bear our own cross in the form of suffering. It has to be there. Spirituality is not just to create an anesthetic effect. Many think that, that it will be like an anesthesia. I will be deep in meditation and I will, won't realize my suffering. No, it is actually a question of detachment. The body remains, its suffering remains. Somehow I am just the witness. I know when I see you suffering, the way I feel it is you suffering, not me. It is your body-mind which is going through suffering, not me. I may sympathize, but I don't feel that suffering. The man of realization the same way observe the suffering, but they know they are not the suffering. They are something beyond that. And that's the thing which even in the moment of intense suffering can give them tremendous tranquility. So here the words are very interesting that he thought that Christ must be suffering and then he gave an intent look at the cross. He was, he was full of joy. A similar incident is in the life of Ramakrishna. When you know Ramakrishna was going through the last illness, someone came and asked Ramakrishna that, how are you? He told, see, I'm, go through, I'm going through some intense suffering. I cannot eat anything. Whatever I eat, almost 90% of it comes out. This intense suffering, I cannot speak. There's, uh, the constantly the, the wound is lacerating. And he was just speaking of all the suffering. But the man somehow, when he gave an intent look at Ramakrishna, he told, but I find that you are as if in, uh, full of joy. And in Bengali, what he told, because Ramakrishna's words was extremely colloquial, uh, he told, Shalad that rascal has caught me. That was the words of that rascal has found out the secret. He was just speaking of his bodily pain. Sri Ramakrishna, in some other instances, whenever anyone is to speak of his pain, he was going through the excruciating pain of cancer he was going through in his last days. He used to say, Shorir tar jane, The body knows its suffering. Let the mind be at peace with yourself, in the bliss of the divine. 
they have developed that detachment. As Ramakrishna used to say, you know what a realized soul is like? It is just like a ripened coconut. When the coconut is not ripened, you, it's impossible to segregate the shell from the kernel. They're all intertwined. When it, is, when it is ripened, you take the coconut in your hand, you shake it, you will find the shell has got totally separated from the kernel, which makes a noise. So he's a realized soul is like that. The shell has got separated from the kernel. In the life of Swami Turiyananda, there's a wonderful example. He developed so many carbuncles on his back and it had to be operated. But he was against anesthesia. He told I, that I don't like the idea of going to the state of that soon unconsciousness. If you have to operate, you operate on me. Doctor says, how is it possible? And he told, you just let me know when you're going to operate. Give me some time. I will say you operate, then you operate. And you won't believe that's the thing which was done. Not only once, two, three times. There's, there's, there were uh, quite a number of carbuncles which has to be operated. Every time that was the thing. He will just take a time to as if detach himself from the body and without any anesthesia, he went through all those surgical procedures. So it is not, spiritual life doesn't speak of an anesthetic effect. It speaks of withdrawal. You don't become like a veggie. If I put a knife in a cabbage, it doesn't react. Does all my spiritual realization makes me like a cabbage? That I don't have any feeling? No. You have that feeling, intense feeling, but you have detached. You know, it is of the body-mind complex. It in no way touches the real me. The real me is always in joy. The Christ who is in the cross is in the real Christ is in joy. The real Christ is the son of God. He is not the body-mind complex. The body-mind may be going through that excruciating pain. And that's experience. When he tried to relate with himself, immediately that gave that flash of realization. The body-mind is going through the suffering, but he is the detached soul. And that can be very, very healing. And that has happened in the life of the Julian of Norwich. How nicely he's relating that, speaking his words again, just I will try to conclude that I looked with all my might for the moment of his dying and thought I would have seen his body completely died. But I did not see him thus. And just as I was thinking that his life was about to finish and that I must be shown his end, that through suffering he's gradually going to die. Suddenly when I gazed at the cross, his expression changed. It changed into cheerful joy. The change in his blessed countenance changed mine too. And that's why when we don't feel like meditating, we say that Ramakrishna himself told that this, my photo is invaluable. That when the first photo was taken, he himself worshipped that photo. It's a, photo, it's a picture which speaks of immense bliss in deep absorption. Someone came to Ramakrishna. Before that, someone, uh, he have uh, met a person who claimed he goes to Samadhi. And seeing him, he was extremely apathetic towards Samadhi because that person's face will have a very, very painful expression. And seeing Ramakrishna in Samadhi, he told my idea has changed. Otherwise, I would have never thought that Samadhi is a very high state, that eternal bliss. So sometimes we say that when you are not feeling like meditation, just, just look at the face of this illumined soul. Look at the face of Christ. Look at the face of Ramakrishna. The Ramakrishna is a, is a prophet whose actual picture was taken. Uh, Holy Mother used to say that the, uh, the, the, that the 
present civilization is so clever they could they could manage to take the picture of an avatar we all imagine how christ was we have to have no actual picture you see that bliss is as if flowing out that's the real concept of beauty that's why swami vivekananda used to say that when you go to the realization your concept of beauty changes what the world thinks as beauty is no more beauty to you at all it's a total different concept the bliss which comes from within and that's the thing which should be our object of contemplation if we to like them like them want to invoke the prophet soul in us and that's what the mystic traditions of the all the religious traditions speak of so to conclude with the words of julian of norwich that i understand that we through our pains and suffering are now dying with him on his cross only to be redeemed just see the meanings how wonderful meaning come out that you can take that life story of jesus where he was crucified and he there was redemption he came back now there may be lot of arguments whether it has really happened or not but it happens in the life of each and every mystic the redemption that this body and mind has to go through this jara vyadhi mrityu but the real redemption happens when you can really detach and that's the idea of jivan mukti that you need not have to die to go to heaven in this life you can enjoy the bliss of liberation for that is the human birth that shankaracharya is asserting jivan mukti sukha prapti hetave janma dharana to enjoy that state of jivan mukti that you are free even while living the body is going through its own course sometimes it is elated sometimes it is in depression sometimes it is in good health sometimes it is suffering but you know you are beyond it the eternal satchidananda swarupa which is beyond all the dualities i understand that we through our pains and suffering are now dying with him on his cross only to be redeemed with him in heaven instantly that's the word that speaks of here and now without any intervention so you know that why they their writings were criticized censored because because of this phrases instantly because the dogma says you have to die to be in heaven but when they write instant immediately the so called the structured system they will revolt what are you saying so they that's why they were all considered as heretics because of these were simple phrases which came from the deep of their realization that realization is here and now it doesn't speak of any post mortem existence here if i have to attain spirituality it has to be here and now ihaiva ihaiva and that's instantly without any intervention and that happens the moment your eye ceases when someone asks sri ramakrishna when shall i be free his answer was when i cease to be as swami vivekananda used to say with that words that this suffering is something which is a fact of life because we want to deny it by why because we foolishly think this world is a pleasure garden in the words of swami vivekananda this world is not a pleasure garden it is a gymnasium where we have came to make ourselves strong spiritually strong all the challenges tribulations of life are like the weights against which we have to work so that we can become spiritually strong and that what all the mystic traditions are pointing at so with this we will find that how the spirituality can be extremely intense 
which all the mystic traditions of the world is pointing at. And unless we too somehow choose to adopt that intense spiritual life in our life, it can be said with 100% certainty, all our attempts for happiness is a mere patchwork. You're just trying to do a patchwork. When your cloth is torn, you have a patchwork here. And again, another person will be torn. And at last, you will be a bundle of patchwork. So that's all our attempt will be. It can be asserted that alone, the real happiness is in the soul. And that has to be realized that in this life, there's no other way out. That's the only way as has been asserted by the rishis. And that's what all the mystics of the mystic traditions points out. So may we also be inspired by these great lives to somehow or other lead that type of life which can give us that ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment. With this prayer, we, just, we will conclude our discussion talk today. Thank you all. Namaskar.